It's humbling to give this the first T.B. Mastin Foundation lecture in Christian ethics, uh, which is a gift to Baylor and the church. Uh, especially, I'm especially thankful for Dr. Mastin's commitment to civil rights um, on the plight of our African-American brothers and sisters in churches, especially in a time when that wasn't popular to do so, and for his claim that uh, what it means to be Christian is to allow the resurrection to take presence in your life um, and to speak through you. So we are thankful for his legacy uh, in the church um, and in the academy. I also want to thank the Maston family and foundation, as well as Dean Garland and the Truett uh, community for hosting this occasion of remembrance and reflection. I'm going to be speaking about war this morning, and specifically certain war policies of the Obama administration reviewing and critically analyzing that policy from a theological perspective. Being that I'm going to be critical, I should qualify what I'm going to say. My assessment of President Obama, especially as it relates to his war policies, is not meant to endorse his political rivals, the Republicans or those further on the left, nor to stump for any political position as defined in the terms of the nation state. I'm not here to critique one partisan position in favor of another. Rather, what I hope to do is help those of us who call ourselves Christians to think through the enormously complex questions of warfare and using, in doing so using the considerable tools of theology. I suppose if I have a side, I would want to claim the side of the church. Not only the church's alternative positions on things like war, for example, the just war tradition or closer to my heart, Christian pacifism, but most importantly, the church itself as an alternative to war. For ultimately what the church is, is not a series of religious platforms or values, but most directly, the church is God's alternative to the desperate violence of our world. It is the invitation to world to be more than world, a call to the world to more fully understand itself as participating in the Trinitarian life of God. The title of my presentation, The Audacity of Hope and the Violence of Peace, draws from two books, Barack Obama's well-known The Audacity of Hope, where he speaks of hope and its available lights, and The Violence of Peace, where Yale Law School professor Stephen Carter tries to show how Obama's hopeful peace plays out in violence. In putting these two notions together, I'm concerned with why our versions of peace tend to look so much like war. You might say that war is peace, American style. I'm concerned to show why our peace is so violent and how violent peace, that is peace secured through violence, which makes us strangely at home with the violence of our peace, characterizes us as a people. I will be focusing on President Obama's UAV targeted killing program as the centerpiece of his war policy and probably the emblem of America's approach to war going forward. Ultimately, what I want to say is that peace and violence for Americans are not opposed, but complementary. In contrast, in conclusion, I would gesture toward a genuine peace that the church as Christ's body brings a real peace participant in and reflective of God's life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Juxtaposed to the world's violent peace, Christ's patience 
and his peace comes as a sword. I will claim that this peace incarnates itself in the world and dwells among us, fully God, fully human. In light of this realness, the so-called audacity of hope and its violent peace will be only audacious and therefore a false hope. In Christ and Christ's church, God is not something we hope for, even audaciously, but a reality present to us. The following was reported in 2009 in the New Yorker magazine. On August 5th, officials at the Central Intelligence Agency in Langley, Virginia, watched a live video feed relaying close-up footage of one of the most wanted terrorists in Pakistan. Batula Massoud, the leader of the Taliban in Pakistan, and by all accounts, a really awful person, could be seen reclining on the rooftop of his father-in-law's house in Zangara in the hamlet of South Wazirkistan. It was a hot summer night, and he was joined outside by his wife and his uncle, a medic. At one point, the remarkably crisp images showed that Masood, who suffered from diabetes and kidney uh, problems, was receiving an intravenous drip. The video was being captured by infrared camera of a Predator drone, a remotely controlled, unmanned plane that had been hovering undetected two miles or so above the house. The image remained just as stable when the CIA remotely launched two Hellfire missiles from the Predator. Authorities watched the fiery blaze in real time. After the dust cloud dissipated, all that remained of Masood was a detached torso. Eleven others died, his wife, his father-in-law, his mother-in-law, a lieutenant, and seven bodyguards. Numerous similar stories can be told since the U.S. currently has approximately 7,000 UAV drones flying the skies looking for targets to kill. The development of the UAV program has been a game changer in the war on terror and a watershed moment in military ingenuity. There are reports that people in places like Afghanistan or Yemen live in constant terror, that death will come from the sky without a moment's notice. We could spend much time thinking about the ethics of the Unmanned Aerial Vehicles Program, the UAV program, of targeted killing. Since I'm interested in discussing the broader cultural issues in which droning takes place, that is, how we Americans think about war in a peace that makes droning a watershed moment, a game changer, let me offer just a few samples of what I consider to be the significant moral issues of the UAV program. First, when did assassination become an acceptable military practice? The answer is when we committed to something called the war on terror, which knows no spatial, temporal, or political boundaries. The strategic benefit of the war on terror is that anyone, anywhere, anytime can be named an enemy, targeted and killed in a way that would count as legitimate military action. Within this allowance, we have something called anticipatory self-defense, which when situated within the larger Bush doctrine, grants the right to make preemptive strikes an omnipresent possibility. The 2011 droning of Amir Khan and Anwar al-Awlaki 
were, who were both American citizens would, absent the war on terror, be considered violations of our due process laws, except for the fact that the expansion of the allowances of the war on terror rendered them targetable. While this is not assassination in the traditional sort, for example, slitting the throat of an enemy combatant, it is something similar, leading to certain ethical ironies. As Vicki Duvall, a former CIA lawyer who now teaches at the U.S. Naval Academy observed, people are a lot more comfortable with a predator drone strike that kills many people than with the throat slitting that kills one. Another ethical question. Why are the procedures and protocols of this program not only secretive, but seemingly purposefully convoluted? There are actually at least two programs, one run by the JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, and the another run by the CIA. Each program possesses its own classified kill list and protocols. Many observers have suggested that this convolution is the government's intentional attempt to obfuscate, resulting in what one NYU international law expert called an accountability void. Adding to the model, the UAV program is run alongside military intelligence officials, civilian contractors, who may, uh, uh, civilian contractors, individuals working for for-profit corporations. Now corporations may or may not be people, but they cannot be held accountable to the standard chain of command. Third, is droning acceptable on just war grounds? The just war tradition was established to make sure that war was done for the right reasons and in the right ways. It assumes that while war is never good, it is sometimes necessary, and when necessary, should only be conducted for right or just causes and in right or just ways. One of the key guiding rules is that of proportionality, that the use of force would be proportionate to the stated purpose of going to war, that the use of force is commensurate to the end the use of force is trying to accomplish. This key stems from a code of honor among warriors. Just warriors are virtuous warriors and fight only when necessary and in honorable ways. In the case of droning, a 500-pound bomb that kills everything in sight is neither commensurate to the task of killing one person, nor is it honorable, given that while one combatant faces grave danger, the other faces no danger at all. Our former British Air Chief Marshal referred to such an arrangement as a virtueless war, given that droning requires of drone pilots who are often many miles away from the battlefield neither courage nor heroism, two traditional marks of the just warrior. A virtueless war sounds a lot like an unjust war. And if we are not committing a just war in Afghanistan, what are we committing? Finally, and perhaps most worrisome, who cares about the targeted killing program? Americans seem to care very little that their government is running a war based on targeted killing. Time Magazine at the end of 2000 ran a story about the newest UAV models, which would be faster, smarter, and cheaper. Looking at the article, I wasn't sure if I was reading a description of a weapon of war 
or the latest ad for an iPad. The story offered no ethical reflection or questions, demonstrating how Americans have largely granted President Obama a moral blank check to end the war in Afghanistan. One of the darker sides of this reality is the suggestion that we have not asked many questions simply because the program has become so successful. Namely, it has allowed us to kill many people without having Americans put in harm's way. Regardless and despite these, morals, uh, these troublesome moral questions, President Obama has expanded the drone program far beyond the Bush administration. According to the Washington Post, other commanders-in-chief have presided over wars with far higher casualty counts, but no president has ever relied so extensively on the secret killing of individuals to advance the nation's security goals. We are talking about a system in which a decentralized apparatus carries out summary executions of people who are assured are bad and who are sometimes U.S. citizens. And the president knows about this, but chooses not to exercise oversight or control of the process. We have, in other words, according to another expert, created an unaccountable killing machine operating at an industrial level. Such is life under the Obama administration, the world under America's superpower. While the violence and suffering I just described is sad, even devastating, it is not unique. War is what we do, have been doing, and will be doing for the foreseeable future. It is required of us because of the role we play, or think we play, in the world. The UAV system is only the most technologically advanced version of it. I think it is instructive to think for a moment about Obama's predecessor, George W. Bush. In the New American Militarism, the historian and retired U.S. officer, Andrew Basevich, describes Bush's tenure as commander-in-chief accordingly. Well before September 11, 2001, and before the younger Bush's ascent to the presidency, a militaristic predisposition was already in place both in official circles and among Americans more generally. In this regard, 9-11 deserves to be seen as an event that gave added impetus to an already existing tendency rather than as a turning point. For his, for his part, President Bush himself ought to be seen as a player reciting his lines rather than as a playwright drafting an entirely new script. As off-putting as his bravado could be, President Bush was simply acting out the role scripted for him. It was easy to de demonize Bush, or Obama for that matter, as if he were an aberration to business as usual, as if before him were perpetual peace. We are a country that has been at war in one form or another for most of our history. President Bush, President Bush and Obama and their respective ambitions for peace are just the latest casualties. We are, after all, a violent people. It is hard to hear that because we, be we believe we love peace. But our violence is most clearly expressed 
in the kind of peace we love, a peace secured by violence. We go to war not because we love violence, but because we love peace. And violence is how we imagine peace. Let me repeat myself and be clear here. We are a nation at war again, not because we love war, but because we love peace, and war is what we mean by peace. If you follow our history, including the history of our drones that they're presently making, you'll come to this conclusion. For Americans, peace is not the absence of war, but rather war for certain ends. This is not because we're a bad people. We are a good people. And this is how we express our goodness. Those who do not like Obama's war policies, exemplified today in his targeted killing program, cannot accuse him of inconsistency. If we thought he promised us a rose garden and therefore now feel disappointed, we weren't listening. What is unique about his presidency is that Obama furnished us with perhaps the most philosophically sophisticated articulation of war and its reasons of any president in recent memory. The fact that this articulation came in the form of his Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech shows quite clearly what I meant a minute ago when discussing the peculiar American correlation of peace and war. The Peace Prize speech was a statement not only political, but more critically, theological. An admonition of war and for war based on a metaphysical description of our lives. He said this, War in one form or another appeared with the first man. At the dawn of history, its morality was not questioned. It was simply a fact, like drought or disease, the manner in which tribes and then civilizations sought power and settled their differences. The capacity of human beings to think of new ways to kill one another proved inexhaustible, as did our capacity to exempt from mercy those who look different or pray to a different god. We must begin by acknowledging the hard truth. We will not eradicate violent conflict in our lifetime. There will be times when nations acting individually or in concert will find the use of force not only necessary, but morally justified. I face the world as it is and cannot stand idle in the face of threats to the American people. For make no mistake, evil does exist in the world. A nonviolent movement could not have halted Hitler's armies. Negotiations cannot convince Al-Qaeda's leaders to lay down their arms. To say that force may sometimes be necessary is not a call to cynicism. It is a recognition of history, the imperfections of man, and the limits of reason. One of the things that is revealing about this speech is its allusions to the Christian ethics of Reinhold Niebuhr, and its espousal of Niebuhr's moral universe and its ensuing ethical posture called Christian realism. Christian realism claims that the way of Jesus, while laudatory, only works as an ideal, not a reality. That as Niebuhr believed, Christ stands only at the edge of history, not in history. Accordingly, in history, where we must deal with reality, not ideals, with Hitler and Al-Qaeda, not Jesus, 
We must be realistic about how much good can be achieved, about how far peace should be pursued. Hitler and Al-Qaeda are realistic. Jesus and the politics of Jesus, that is the New Testament church, not realistic. Rejecting nonviolence as an unrealistic possibility, Niebuhr said this, the perfect love of Christ comes into the world, but it does not maintain itself there. The cross therefore stands at the edge of history and not squarely in history. The Christian faith has quite rightly seen in this cross a revelation of the nature of the divine and eternal as well as the ultimate historical possibility and impossibility. In a 2007 New York Times interview, Obama was asked, have you ever heard of Reinhold Niebuhr? To which Obama responded enthusiastically, I love him. He's one of my favorite philosophers. As to what he learned from Niebuhr, he said, I take away the compelling idea that there's serious evil in the world and hardship and pain, and we should be humble and modest in our belief that we can eliminate those things. I take away the sense that we have to make these efforts knowing they are hard and not swinging from naive idealism to realism. In some ways, the only difference between Bush, for all of our antipathy towards him and his wars, and Obama, is Obama said it better. While Bush gave us the reasons for war, Obama gives us a theology of war. And while Obama has, <coughs> and while Obama has been, wisely, much less willing to associate war with divine fiat, using God to justify his politics, that is only because he was able to identify war as a natural order of things. There is no need to appeal to the nature of God when you can appeal to the nature of the world, a world shorn of God, where God stands always outside. Recently, Obama and the Pentagon announced sweeping cuts in national defense, a drop of $100 billion in the budget and a reduction of 80,000 troops. In doing so, he said this, Yes, our military will be leaner, but the world must know the United States is going to maintain our military superiority with armed forces that are agile, flexible, and ready for the full range of contingencies and threats. Over the next 10 years, the growth in the defense budget will slow, but the fact of the matter is this. It will still grow because we have a global responsibility that demands our leadership. In fact, the defense budget is still larger than it was toward the end of the Bush administration. And I firmly believe, and I think the American people understand, we can keep our military strong and our nation secure with a defense budget that continues to be roughly, continues to be larger than roughly the next 10 countries combined. Notice that the argument here is not, we have been a warring people and now desire peace and so we'll reduce our armaments. Nor is it after 10 years of two wars, we have grown weary of war and the promises of war and so now need to rest from warring. The argument is not one of peacefulness, it is one of efficiency. Obama is, as he was in 2002, not opposed to war, just dumb and rash wars. After all, in announcing the cuts, he promises We've built the best trained, best led, best equipped military in history, 
And as commander-in-chief, I'm going to keep it that way. In other words, we will continue to be a warring country as we have always been, but we'll do it for cheaper. None of this is about genuine peace, but rather financial expediency driven by a crushing deficit and a recessed economy. Some of you may be wondering at this point who I will vote for. If I think there's an alternative to Obama and whoever's in office, whether there's a better option than droning. Those of you wondering about my vote, I'm afraid to say, have missed the point. For viewing war as our nature and destiny makes targeted killing not only necessary, but inevitable. There will be no alternatives for us so long as we continue to confuse our loves, our love for war and our love for peace. If we think war makes for peace, droning, even with all of its moral baggage, will be our best way forward. But this is where Christians, American Christians, need to separate their American from their Christian. The church not only gives us alternatives to the drones and war, the church as Christ's body is the alternative. When the towers came down in 2001, when all those people were murdered at the Pentagon and the poor folks killed on Flight 93, I mourned with everyone else. I mourned for the incredible loss of life, the disregard for human suffering, the terrible violation of everything we hold dear. I also remember lamenting what would come next. I knew our response to being killed would be to kill. Demonstrating how the propensity to war always short circuits creativity, we responded the only way we knew how. Someone bombed us, and we're going to go bomb them. The, no the world knew we would do it. Al-Qaeda certainly knew we would do it. Our doing it surprised no one. But we might have done differently. Or at least those people who are both American and Christian could have allowed their faith in Christ to inform how they are going to be, a, be as citizens of a country at war. We might have suggested an alternative, one that is more than audacious. Instead of bombing them with bombs, we could have, as Stanley Hauerwas once suggested, bombed them with bread. Bombing them with bombs only confirmed to the world that America is a violent nation. Now, if we, bomb with, if we bomb them with bread, that would be a different story. Imagine, in the weeks and months after 9-11, American C-130s and B-52s, all of our stealth bombers flying into Afghanistan, and instead of 1,000-pound bombs, we drop bread, parachuting payloads so that people could be fed. Instead of M1A Abrams tanks rolling, rolling into the wasteland of Kabul, big white Wonder Bread trucks were their goofy red and yellow circles, delivering nourishment to a people endlessly invaded, religiously oppressed, and criminally bullied. And even in South Uzbekistan, yes, the place where we dismembered Masood, by all counts, a really awful person, 
Predator drones would sweep down in the dead of night and instead of hellfire missiles, attack him, his wife, his father and mother-in-law with food. Isn't such a proposal, bombing with bread, irresponsible? Wouldn't it make us more vulnerable to further attack? Might Americans become the laughing stock of the world? Yes to all three. Or probably yes, since we didn't try, we don't know. You might think to yourself, how could we do such a thing? Where could such an idea come from? Why would we respond with bread? Simply, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The church in America could have suggested this. What is the church, after all, other than God's body given to the world? That the world might be nourished on peace and patience rather than war and desperation. We are bread. And insofar as we can live by peace and patience, even in a world of Hitler and Al-Qaeda, we let the world know that 9-11 did not change anything. Rather, history was changed on a Friday, a Saturday, and a Sunday when our Lord Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected. We might have said this. This is what God did when people were killing him. We as citizens demand we do likewise. We could have complained that the tax dollars of American Christians shouldn't be used for bombs. And even if we lost that argument, might have mobilized the church to bomb them with bread ourselves as the Baptist Global Response did in 2010 in Afghanistan and Pakistan, responding to monsoon flooding that killed 1,500 people and affected millions more. You might think that such a call on the part of the church, that such actions by American Christians is not possible. You may suppose following Obama, following Reinhold Niebuhr, such response unrealistic and even irresponsible. You may think that Jesus Christ could do such a thing only because he, unlike we, is God. You may think, along with Niebuhr, that the church cannot approximate Christ, cannot be his body, because Christ is not real in the way the church is real, because Christ is not real in the way Hitler or Al-Qaeda are real. You may suppose all these things. And yet... The creed says he was real. In fact, really divine and really human. In the face of the violence done to him, in the face of terror, Christ gave his body as bread because he was God. And this is how God acts towards the world. And because he was human. And this is what humanness looks like. Those who hold to the creed to the scriptural witness the creed summarizes, for them, the problem with Christian realism and its pleas to be realistic is that in light of the realness of Christ's body, it is not realistic at all. This is my body given for you. To deny the realism and possibility of bombing with bread is to deny the realness of Christ's humanity. 
and to deny and to deny not and to not to, uh, sorry and to deny that is following Saint Athanasius to deny our salvation. Bombing with bread when people bomb you with bombs is what a reconstituted humanity, a humanity fully realized, does when taken up into the Trinitarian life of God. Responding to violence and terror with peace and patience is the life of God translated into the world, embodied in the church. Would bombing with bread be effective? It can be no less effective than all those wars that promised us peace. Can God's love be effective? If not, we're all doomed. Anyhow, effectiveness is not our cause, but faithfulness. We are not here to be effective, especially since those pushing for effectiveness tend to be drawn towards violence to achieve it. The hope of the church is not effectiveness, as if our task is to change the world. We are not here to change the world through violence or the peace secured through violence. We are here to witness to the fact that the world has been saved in Christ. The world saved in Christ means we need no longer secure peace by violence. That such measures have been deemed forfeit in the now reigning terms of the kingdom. This is not the audacity of hope, but the reality of God. His very body present in the world. Thank you.